Welcome to Working Dog Radio. Broadcasting the bite. This episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by the best training conference on the planet, Hits K9 Training and Conference, www.hitsk9.net, or call Jeff Barrett, 863-529-5113. We'll see you there. One of our other great sponsors, be sure to check them out, Ray Allen Manufacturing up in Colorado Springs, rayallen.com. Be sure to use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO for 10% off. Spell it out, get the discount. Everyone knows Ted and I are huge fans of Dogtra. Uh, we use all their products, lots of stuff. Dogtra.com, use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. All right, everybody loves drag and drop the easiest way possible. The easiest way to get a kennel up and running is to get them from Horizon Structures. Go to horizonstructures.com or call 1-888-447-4337. Make sure you tell them that Working Dog Radio sent you. There you go. One of our newest sponsors and one of our favorites, Kinetic Dog Food. Kineticdogfood.com or call 512-279-8966. Get your dog on the right track. One of our other fantastic sponsors that are run by the Heiser, some of the best people in the industry. We love those guys. Uh, looking for a reputable canine kennel with dog sales and training services? They're located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual-purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource, so check them out. And where you can check them out is Southern Coast Canine. That's letter K, number 9.com, or give them a call, 877-903-DOGS. That's dogs. We get asked all the time what happens to all the working dogs once they retire. If the dogs are lucky, they get to retire with their handler. Sometimes those dogs are expensive in their retirement due to health issues sustained from injuries on the job or old age in general. That's a heavy burden for a lot of the handlers. Enter organizations like the Georgia Police Canine Foundation. These great folks assist law enforcement agencies with life-saving supplies and equipment for our canine officers and help provide assistance for them in their retirements. It can be hard finding an organization with dogs' best interests at heart, but we strongly encourage you to check out Georgia Police Canine Foundation. Great people doing great work. All right, we are back. Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. With me, as always, is Eric Stambro from Canton, Ohio. Eric, what's up? Well, today uh, kind of officially kicked off the new training facility um, they're still doing, I mean, the, the guy who owns the building is still doing a little bit of work for me in there. And I, of course, have a ton of things to do in there to get it really going. But, uh, the canine association guys came down after lunch and, um, gave them a tour of it. And then just ran them through a couple building search scenarios, no equipment, just finding alert type stuff and worked pretty good. Um, you know, next time I come up there, things I need to work on. You know, next time I come up there, I'm going to do Blair Witch, and I'm going to stand next to that gravestone, right? <laughs> oh, of course, you have. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, there's the grave in the basement, so it's weird. Jeez, you sent yeah, me strange. a video of that. I was. I like, took everybody nope. down there. Yeah, yes, a bunch of big, big, strong cops were like, "No, thank you." Yeah. So who's so, coming uh, down there? So for those listening, like, what, what was the deal? Like, you had to. So it was built on a cemetery or something. And to make it legal, yeah, they had I, to leave I, one I, grave, right? 
that's the way, that's the story I'm being told. They couldn't relocate everybody. I, I don't know the whole deal, but uh, yeah, for some reason there's one, and it's creepy because there's somebody put um, flowers on it. And well, that's what I was like gonna ask. Flowers, so they sit there. But there's a chair right in front of it facing the tombstone. Oh, of course so like, there I is. don't know, if somebody goes down there and talks to that person, I don't know. It's pitch black on it, I can tell you that much. Oh, you sent me the video and that like it that thing comes out of the mist. <laughs> that gravestone is like my height. Comes out of yeah. the mist. I was like, nah, I'm good. Uh-uh. <laughs> no yeah. way. Uh yeah. So next time I come up, I'm gonna do Blair Witch up there in there next to that gravestone. Sweet. Um Yeah, so I we got the handler school going on and uh trainer school going on with Travis. Um Nate graduated, so he's back over in uh Arkansas doing his thing now. So um, he just got a job. Kid that just graduated just got a job uh, with Sheriff's Department doing. Uh, he wants to be a canine handler and he uh, got a job as a corrections guy with the Sheriff's Department at the jail, sounds like. So he's on his way. He's 20. So we'll see. Hopefully he's uh, nice. he's a good yeah. kid. His dad's a canine handler in Arkansas. So uh, he's on his way. Um, yeah. Other than that, just doing green dogs, and uh, we got some bunch of puppies and young dogs, um, and imprinting and back to normal. These long handler schools. I'm so glad when I love my handlers, but I'm glad when they go home because I can go back to <laughs> like working green dogs and doing my thing. So, yeah. Other than that, uh, we ain't got nothing much going on. Tracking, bike work. Yeah, I'm driving, driving to Dallas Airport. You know. DC tomorrow to get three dogs from Europe. Um, two of them are uh, probably they're going to get tested on Monday. They're probably going to do pretty well. The other one is is eight months old. Um, he's going to be a project. So, um, but other than that, yep, getting busy. Awesome. So, um, the last two episodes have been pretty good. We had um, Avalanche Dog uh, with Hutchinson. And then we had Rowling on the Marine. Uh, so, you know, we've kind of strayed off of our, you know, kind of like really intricate. Um, this is how you do X, Y, and Z and kind of the stuff, some of the police stuff and done some of the broader um, stuff with some really good interviews and some really good um, stuff, especially with the Avalanche episode, tying a bunch of stuff together for police dogs and then some of the search and rescue stuff. Uh, so in that same vein... Uh, what do we got going on tonight? So uh, the other day I was listening to Cameron Ford's uh, Talking Sense podcast, and um, our old friend uh, Pat Nolan was on there, and it's a really good it's a really good episode about puppy raising and everything. And right. um, Pat is married to um, a lady who is a an amazing dog trainer in her own right, and he is <clears throat> never never you know s- slow to to promote her and he he said something really interesting because she has been a um pretty high level uh just you know besides training pet dogs and everything else in in obedience training uh competing in a competition um on a pretty high level competition obedience stage and they made the comment he made the comment that there were um five dogs that he knew of in history that were uh champions in and uh, competition obedience and uh also champions on a field trial uh stage and that she had trained four of those five so i was like wow well it turns out there was actually six dogs and she trained five of them 
So I was like, man, that's so impressive. And and the competition obedience stuff, we haven't even really gotten into that much. And there's it's like a whole other realm of working dogs that people don't even know that they could probably, possibly even get in, in, into and do some work. So I was uh, I was like, yeah, we should have her on. Yeah, for sure. So we have uh, Connie Cleveland on. Connie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Oh, yes, absolutely. We are super excited. Um, you know, really the only obedience episode we've ever done um, was with the guy from Florida um, named uh, Katie Matthews, who was great and did a lot of stuff, uh, talked a lot about, about, like, relationships with dogs and handlers and everything else. Um, and he focuses a lot more on the pet stuff. But you have been training dogs since you were, like, eight or, like, young. And, you know, you grew up doing this. And so... You know, we were kind of talking before we started recording, and you talked about seeing some clients that have come back for uh, training that uh, you saw when they were kids, and then they came back as adults and brought their own dog. <laughs> so I guess kind of, you know, start from the beginning. You started at eight years old, and, you know, you had parents that were involved in this, and so how did we get to where we're having this conversation today? Oh, well, my um, my mother started training dogs in the 1950s, and she trained a dog with a woman named Blanche Saunders. Anybody that knows any history about dog obedience knows that, um, at least AKC obedience, that Blanche Saunders wrote some of the first books we have about dog obedience training. And mom trained a dog uh, in the 50s, moved out to the Midwest, met and married my father. I was her youngest child, and she always had this kind of dog hobby, but I was willing to go with her to her dog activities. So when my brother and sister got old enough to kind of be doing their own thing, I started just hanging out with mom. So they bought me my first dog when I was eight, and uh, it was a Maltese. And when I was 10, I got my first leg on my first obedience title leg meaning my first passing score i got 171 points you need 170 to pass out of 200 so i got 171 points at my first show i was the happiest person at the dog show and man i was hooked (laughs) so you know today we talk about soccer moms i had a dog show mom so she introduced me to all kinds of dog activities i started in obedience and junior showmanship and then pretty soon my my mom had gotten a golden retriever and the family kind of got attached to golden retrievers and pretty soon i was showing them in confirmation we joined the local hunt club and started competing in field trials i did some tracking as a kid um and you know any anything that was a dog activity my mom was willing to expose me to because she was going to keep me busy while i was in high school and uh, when I got to be a senior in high school, I announced I wanted to be a dog trainer. That did not go over very well in my family. Um, so I went to college dutifully like I was supposed to. And uh, when I got there, I found out that if you got into the engineering department, you could get a cooperative work experience job and you could only be in school every other semester. And that seemed really more palatable to me than being there full time. So that's how I chose my major. And every semester that I was out working, I would take jobs near good dog trainers. So I I trained with a gentleman named Bob Self Sr. and and a gal that was partners with him, Sharon Long, at the time. And then I went out to the East Coast and trained with uh, Diane Bauman and Ruth Rosbeck, who were also well-known obedience people. This is like the early 1980s. And uh, I worked my way through college that way. Um, I took my, I, I worked as an engineer for a long, arduous 15 months 
before I took my first full-time job mm-hmm. training dogs, and I, I moved to South Carolina to train uh, dogs for the physically handicapped and the hearing impaired. That's where I, that was my first full-time dog training job. Man, the last guy we just interviewed, um, Mike Rowling, the, the author, who's a marine handler, um, and handled the dog, handled Rex over in Afghanistan, and he had a super similar story. He just, you know, he, when he was a kid, his sister, um, you know, was, they were training dogs for the blind and that was his exposure to training dogs. And then, you know, I mean, he then became a Marine and was able to train dogs or it was able to then handle a dog and went to Iraq. And I mean, that's a crazy correlation that, you know, you were doing stuff for physically handicapped and stuff from an early age. Um, you know, and that obviously that still happens. In fact, you know, Alicia and I were flying back from wherever we were just from for HRD recently and saw a Great Dane with uh, somebody that was actually phys- that was a, a that was a support dog for sure. Um, but that's yeah, super cool. <laughs> that's a that's a common thread <laughs> between the last two interviews. Wow, I had no idea. Interesting. So, um, your first dog was a well, one seventy one out of seventy, right? No, one seventy one out one seventy one out of two hundred. But oh, that was passing. You only, was passing. you only had to have 170, so I, I was pretty excited. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then and when I was in high school, my parents bought me a started golden retriever, which is like the nicest thing you can do for a kid because it already knew how to retrieve and, and it had some training. And, and so that dog, I was just able to do all kinds of things with that dog um, during high school. And I... Um, went to work for a really well-known golden retriever breeder, uh, Jackie Mertens at Top Press Golden Retrievers, and, and she mentored me while I was in high school. And, um, you know, like I said, it was supposed to be a hobby, but it didn't turn out that way. I took the job training service dogs. Uh, nonprofits don't pay very well, and I was broke, so I started teaching obedience classes on the side uh, just because I needed to supplement my income working for a nonprofit. And uh, that was in 1986. And by 1991, it was very clear that my obedience business was taken off. And, and at that time, my family was really supportive of me making that my full-time job. You know, most, most trainers uh, will say that through over the years, their training styles have evolved based on knowledge, uh, exposure to other folks and things that they've learned. But so that first dog you had the competition, we got the 171. And... To this day, like, what is one thing that absolutely has not changed? The, the one stalwart thing that you've done consistently since then till now. I, uh, the one thing that has done, the one thing that has not changed is that I am passionate about dog training, and I am much more of a dog trainer even than I am a competitor. And I've done a lot of competing, but I love training dogs. I, I just, I cannot imagine not getting to train dogs every day. I mean, I, you know, people go to the gym, some people run, I train dogs. Um, I have to say when I started as a, as a kid now, um, in the seventies, training was not very thoughtful. And there was a lot of, in fact, there were signs up on the, on the walls of the training club that I was a member of that said, correct and praise. Well, you know, if you put a child with a, leash and a choke chain on a Maltese and and you say to them correct and praise that just means jerk the leash and tell them they're a good dog well I mean nothing could be further from the truth why would you be saying good dog if you were jerking the leash I mean you know what are they good for putting up with you you know I I don't know but 
Um, I have to say that the, the thing that revolutionized my dog training was in the early 1980s, and I was in college and when I met Diane Bauman. I give her a lot of credit. She wrote a book called um, Beyond Basic Dog Training, and she was a, a voice in the wilderness at that time. She was the first person I had ever met that said, could we please stop correcting dogs for things they don't understand? And when, when we use the word correction, that's a, that's a funny word because, you know, if you say to me, well, Connie, how do you correct that? What are you asking me? Are you saying, um, how do you use negative reinforcement? How do you use punishment? Or how do you fix it? I mean, that word correction is way too generic for us to really be kind of throwing about. But what she was saying is, you know, at that time, obedience training, and I'm talking about pet training and competition training because there is a sport of dog obedience was very much, if the dog wasn't doing what you wanted, you jerked his leash. And if he was doing what you wanted, you said, good dog. And that was it. And man, nobody used food. If you used food, you hid it because it just was not acceptable. Um, nobody knew anything about reward markers or, uh, so I give Diane a lot of credit because she was, she was really a voice that said, you know what? Dogs really want to be right. And we can show them things. And one of the ways dogs learn, of course, is that we can physically show them what we want them to do. They're, they're really unique in that. I mean, you can physically put a dog in a sit. If you do it enough times, he's going to learn to sit. Well, you know, you can't train your guinea pig that way or your chicken or your cat, for that matter. I tried that when I was a kid. You can't teach a cat to come with a rope on its neck, I promise. Um, so I, Diane was the one that really kind of set me on that path, that really got me thinking about, how can we explain things to dog? Because they are—they really want to receive information from us if it makes sense to them. That makes sense. So let me ask you this, because um, this has been a, a, a kind of a topic that some of us have talked about. Uh, so you have been, um, over the years, I'm sure, around your fair share of dogs um, uh, that, that are working, like go into law enforcement or military working. Um, there is a a faction of people that believe that the same type of, I don't know if you call it motivation or same type of obedience that you would do on a, a pet dog, whether it's a regular, just a pet or whether it's a competition pet is just doesn't work on a, on a actual military police working dog. And what was your response to that? V? Well, I, I, I guess I, I need to understand that a little bit better. Um, what, what, in that they need more drive when the dog is doing obedience or in that they need more reliability. I'm not, I'm not sure what the, what, what's the, what's the pushback about? Well, the pushback is like, so, uh, when we're doing, um, obedience on say, uh, just your, your regular golden retriever and what we see. Um, so like most of us teach, you know, a place or spot or crate or whatever for long periods of time in the, in the, the mental benefits that we see out of that, uh, we, we see a lot of people are like, oh, that, that stuff's just for your house pet. That doesn't help. It doesn't do anything for the working dog because we, you know, obedience kills their drive. Um, well, I, you know, that, that makes me think that people haven't really been exposed to high levels of uh, what obedience is all about or, for that matter, what a field trial dog is all about. And, I mean... I, th I think when you start looking at really highly competitive dogs and highly performing dogs, 
there's really not that much difference. We all want dogs who operate in drive enthusiastically with lots of control off leash. I mean, that's what we want. And, and, uh, I, obedience certainly rewards animated and accurate, um, and animated being in drive. We don't, we don't reward, um, we don't reward activity for the sake of activity. And at least in the sport of obedience, I, I would say the closest thing that obedience, that the closest correlate, corollary to obedience is dressage in a horse. Um, so, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure how to answer that question in that, you know, my obedience dogs can stay on a place for long periods of time. It doesn't hurt their enthusiasm or their, their motivation. My field trial dogs can stay where they're put for long periods of time. They they got to know when when to offer you all that drive and when to control it, don't they? Absolutely. You know, you've made a couple of points that are like real, um, like sink home with me. One of my early mentors, uh, her name is Suzanne Shelton. She's here uh, close to Tulsa. Uh, she owns a company. Uh, she owns a kennel called Alsterlitz German Shepherds. She breeds beautiful German Shepherds, and she's a magnificent uh, trainer, um, and taught me a ton about marker training. And about um, how to not get bit by big gnarly dogs, because I had a really bad habit of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm going to make this dog do something. Yeah, he's going to make him bite me is what it's going to do. Um, and, you know, you know, you brought up the idea of making sure the dog understands what a correction is and how we're being corrected. And then Eric kind of, you know, followed it up with the question about, um, you know, understanding that. There's a misconception within, I think, the military and the and the police working dog community that placing too much and and in the and in in the personal protection world too, which I don't really talk a whole lot about, but that placing a ton of control on a dog, or in terms of obedience, um, diminishes their drive. And I think the misconception is that obedience is done out of drive and is done, like you said, with compulsion. Um, and a ton of like, you know, the dog is working to escape. There's like basic escape behavior versus working a dog in drive and working a dog in obedience. And I think you answered that beautifully, but you did answer, you did bring up a question and, and I don't fully understand this either. What is a field trial dog? Cause I know there's a lot of police kind of canine handlers and they're like, well, listening to this, I'm like, well, what's a field trial? <laughs> Cause okay. I mean, well, I can kind of explain yeah. it, but I want you to do it. <laughs> Okay. So, you know, obedience, competitive obedience is basically like dressage. Let's just, let's just make that correlation with dressage for a horse. And, and you can do competitive obedience with absolutely any breed. There are certainly breeds that are more popular. And I, I think just because they put up with a lot of repetition and they are fairly easy to train, you know, and, and the dogs that are, are, you see more often in obedience are golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers, Shetland sheepdogs, border collies. I mean, I'd say that that's probably the, the dogs you see the most of. Um, a field trial, there's lots of different types of field trials. They're basically field trials are for hunting breeds. And you could have a pointing dog field trial or you could have a spaniel field trial. Um, I happen to compete in retriever field trials. And the retriever field trials are... Um, dogs have to, the, the retrievers have to retrieve. They do not have to flush. They have to retrieve. So imagine that we are mimicking uh, a dove hunt or um, a duck hunt where the dogs are in a blind with you, waiting their turn, birds are falling, and then dogs are sent to retrieve. 
we in competition, and of course, competition always gets harder as trainers get better. So if you went to a retriever field trial today, you would watch dogs retrieving birds that were maybe 300 or 400 yards away, and you would think, there is no hunting scenario when I'd have a dog that retrieved that far away. But in order to find the winner, things have become extreme, right? Um, but we have dogs that can watch, sit next to us, watch three or four birds fall, and then has to retrieve them all and remember where they all are. Go get one, bring it back to their handler, remember where the next one is, bring it back to their handler. They also have to do what we call blind retrieve. So you come up, the judge says, hey, 200 yards over there across that piece of water, there's a bird, send your dog for it. And so with whistle and hand signals, we have to direct the dog to the bird. Um, it's 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 a dog in his natural doing what he was bred to do in the most highly trained arena that I have ever seen. To be quite honest, I've been exposed to almost every sport that we have invented for dogs to compete in. Um, and I don't think there's anything more difficult than a retriever field trial. And I, I have talked to lots of people who feel that same way, whether they've been exposed to um, obedience or tracking or Schutzend or agility or whatever it is, or the pointer trials, the retriever field trials are really amazing. I would just encourage any of your listeners, if they ever have a chance to go watch dogs that are in drive under amazing control, um, they would see them at a retriever field trial. How's that for my so my like to ask him, um, <laughs> uh, That's fantastic. That, that's <laughs> awesome. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are also the retriever trials are competitive. So in order to become a field champion, you have to win, and you have to place, and you have to win. You accumulate points by winning. There is something that is not quite as difficult as a field trial called a hunt test, and again. All the sporting breeds have hunt tests. Those are pass-fail events. So you can go and pass at a number of hunt tests and earn a title. But the field champions, so those are senior hunters, master hunters, junior hunters. Those titles go after a dog's name. To, to earn a field championship or an amateur field championship, that title goes in front of a dog's name, and you have to win competitions to do that. And in the retriever world, you have to get a win and, and – you have to accumulate 10 points, but you get five points for a win, no matter how big the field trail is. And they easily could be 60 to a hundred dogs in the trial. So it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough gig. So do people game that as far as selecting which trials that they go to? Um, well, most of us just have to follow the weather. You can't, you can't run a retriever field trial in Minnesota in February. Oh, no, nope. <laughs> because we're equally we're equally tested on land and water. Yeah, so we're equally tested on land and water. So it's pretty hard to get away from the competition because you know the, the professionals are certainly following the circuit, following the weather, and the and the amateurs only have a short season where they can compete. Probably if they're working, they they got to compete at the trials that are you know close to home. So you know there's for years and years. Uh, it was just this year that I sold my business. So un until this year, I, I could compete in a field trial from the beginning of March until the middle of May, and then I could compete from the end of September to the beginning of November. That was it. I, I mean, I, I just didn't have the wherewithal to travel to the trials that were 
further away than, than the trials during that time of year. Is it an industry? Like, can, are there people that train dogs for owners and then they, they show them or compete with them? I mean, is there people that make a living full-time training field trial dogs? Oh, yes. And my husband, Pat Nolan, used to make a living training field trial dogs. Um, that's how, I mean, I met him 20 years ago when he was a field trial professional. So, yeah, and, and, and every dog sport that I've been involved in, and interestingly, except the sport of obedience, it's really interesting to me. There's, there's professionals in almost every dog sport I've ever been associated with, except the sport of obedience. It's really kind of a grassroots thing. It's really not um, acceptable or done to compete with somebody else's dog in the sport of obedience. In obedience, what's accepted is for the professionals to coach the amateurs in order to compete with their own dog. That's kind of an interesting thing because I don't see that in other sports. No, no, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely <different>. not. <laughs> for yeah, sure. Yeah, in, in obedience, if if I, as a professional, if I showed up at an obedience trial with somebody else's dog, people would say to me, "Why are you showing that dog?" I mean, there, there, there would be, there, it, it would be really, um, like I said, it's grassroots. I mean, they, they'd come after you. You know, why would you do that? You better have a good reason. Like, the owner better be near death's door. Um, but it's, it's quite accepted to be there coaching other people, but not showing their dogs. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I mean, in, <clears throat> in some sport work, um, it's acceptable to for people to be handlers for um, dogs and handle dogs that are trained by somebody else. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think a lot of that too has to do with knowing the dog intimately that you're working with and kind of understanding, you know, what's going to happen and understanding like what you're competing against and how the ha- how to handle the dog and everything else. And you're not, it's not as super scripted as, as a lot of the other things. So, uh, that makes a ton of sense. I can totally see that. Um, I, I can see that happening where, you know, you show up and the people are like, oh, this isn't really your dog. In fact, like, I mean, in the sports side of things like um, PSA, for example, we have uh, awards at trials for um, high owner trained um, and then high hand or basically high handled. So if you have a dog that has a previous title or whatever else that has a title already, um, from previous handling and those dogs are pretty rare. Um, at least in PSA, I mean, it's one of those kind of control deals where you have to know what the dog is good at. You have to know how to handle it. You have to know how to deal with whatever's in front of you in terms of the scenario that's been presented. And you can't do that if you weren't intimately involved in the training and raising of that dog. So, uh, for the most part, like a lot of the PSA dogs are raised and trained from puppies and raised and trained by a group and they're handled by the person that owns them, which sounds like it's kind of the same thing with uh, the obedience stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I, when I go do seminars, I, I often have, and I, I do a, a dozen seminars a year, which is plenty, but um, I often have people there that are competing in all kinds of different venues and um, typically American kennel club uh, venues. But you know, I, I really stress to those people that, that the principles we use to train dogs just don't change. And, and when, you, when you start talking about dogs and whether they're, they're trying really hard and you're trying to, to make something clear for them, 
or whether they're just being disobedient. I, I then you know it doesn't matter what venue you're in. It you're you're going to use the same principles. You know, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, um, reward markers. I, and I, I tell people whether I'm training a service dog for somebody who's in a wheelchair or a dog who's going to be a field trial dog or an obedience dog or is going to do agility or whatever it is, the principles don't change. And and I, I think that's what's most important, for, at least for my message when I'm out, is techniques change. How I'm going to teach uh, a dachshund to heal, my technique might have to be different, if for no other reason than size, than it is with a golden retriever. My technique might have to change. But the principles I use don't change. Um, whether I'm teaching a dog to pull a wheelchair or whether I'm teaching a dog to retrieve a duck that's 300 yards away, the principles don't change, just the techniques. Awesome. So um, we're going to take a break real quick. When we come back, uh, we're going to have some talk about those principles, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the patrol dog stuff and some of the NPC stuff when uh, getting some reliability and whatever else. So uh, everybody listening, listen to the listen to the commercials. Don't fast forward through them. I know you're going to, and don't. You're not doing anything anyway. You're listening to this while you're driving. So um, everybody just hang out. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We're going to take a break real quick, uh, and we're going to pay some bills, and we're going to address some of our fantastic sponsors. Hits Canine Training Conference is going to be the first one. This is America's premier canine training sp- seminar packed to the brim with some of the world's best instructors and Eric and I. You know, we're going to be teaching the scenario-based training seminar uh, that revolves around the HRD company that we also have. And, uh, you know, we're going to do the whole dog and pony show. Eric's going to tell us jokes, and I'm going to talk about case law. There are going to be other instructors that are going to be covering great topics from case law to admin to bite work to detection to tracking everything in between for all working dogs. There's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers, breeders, and trainers. HITS 2020 is being held in Scottsdale, Arizona this year from August 18th to the 21st to hurry up and register. And I know all of you listening, wait to the last damn minute to to register. Don't do that because the price goes up. Go to HITS K9, that's letter K number nine dot net, or call Jeff Barrett at 863-529-5113. Make sure you get signed up. Come to Scottsdale. I hear the hotel has a wave pool that you can surf in. So uh, I'm bringing my board shorts. And Ray Allen Canine Manufacturing, it's no secret that we love Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all, to be a world leader in quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, and ring sport to exceed our customers' expectations and delivery on time, every time, at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe they've held true to that since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything dog one of the longtime sponsors of working dog radio from the beginning has been highland canine in north carolina tactical police canine aka highland canine in north carolina offers training seminars and consulting globally for police military and non-government agencies they provide customized training programs to address specific problems and meet the needs of your organization check out their wide array of handler courses instructor courses supervisor courses and online courses at tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. Uh, Jason and Aaron Ferguson are two of our most favorite people, and they have been with us since the beginning, so hit them up. We get it. Fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need that high-quality food 
to give them the energy and nutrients that they require for the work we ask them to do. Kinetic Dog Food has a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working and sporting dogs. They have a full line of foods and supplements available, and they've been working to perfect their line with thousands of dogs in hundreds of departments across the U.S., and you can buy it locally, online, or at Tractor Supply. Okay. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dogtra. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, bark collars. If it's electronic, Dogtra is the best. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Plus, they give us a great discount code. Go to Dogtra.com. Everybody hears me say all the time, you can't teach dogs to bite people, and I'm shocked when they do. Inevitably, I get bit. You've all heard me talk about how I get tagged, and being tagged by a dog sucks. So I've used Quick Term <laughs> to help myself, uh, but before I had to go to the doctor's office, uh, it, it definitely helped keep down infection and everything else, and I've had some uh, non-scarring because of it too, so it's pretty good. But it's no exaggeration. This stuff is great. Once daily treatment for any skin condition on small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big ones that your admins are sure to love. It comes in a spray, it comes in an ointment, it comes in a dressing. Quickterm is great at creating protective barrier and promoting wound healing. There's no reason not to have a bottle of this in the patrol car, or your kennel, or your first aid cabinet. Plus, it's, it's uh, temperature stable. So you can keep it in the patrol car when it's cold, when it's hot, whenever, and it'll still be good. Make sure you hit them up at vetcare.us and use the discount code 10WDR for a discount on your first purchase which is going to be 10 percent have you ever dreamed of having your own kennel but don't know where to start horizon structures has taken all of the guesswork out of building a kennel everything is pre-built to your specifications and preferences and then assembled and dropped off at your land boom new kennels and these things are amazing you've got to see them to truly believe them their website horizonstructures.com is a one-stop shop. Build your best kennel, your favorite things you want. Check it out, horizonstructures.com. All right, everybody, we are back from commercial. This is Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. Um, I say this all the time. If you fast-forwarded through the commercials, you probably missed out on a bunch of cool stuff that you need to go back and listen to. Um, please support our sponsors. Uh, they're amazing. Uh, we can't do this without them. And... Um, uh, besides, they really give out some good stuff. They get uh, good um, discount codes, and, and everything's re really nice. Uh, we got great great support from those folks. Anyways, we're back with Connie Cleveland. We're talking um, obedience um, and field trials and all kinds of things. So um, one of the one of the kind of old school ways of doing things, and we mentioned it a little bit, is the whole uh, yank and crank. We like to call it. Um, where, and when I first got into canine, that's, that's what our program was, you know, an hour out on the field, uh, yanking the dog around, maybe he gets a good boy here and there. And then at the end, everybody goes to their separate corners of the field and plays ball with them, which, um, it was, was pretty ridiculous. You know, I, I've told the story several times where it's a 14 week class at week 10 or 11, we still had to close the gates and block it off with a cruiser to go off leash because the dogs were running away. So I'm um, like, yeah, there's got to be there's got to be a different way to do this. 
um, a while back last year. Right. It's got to be. <laughs> exactly. Con- Connie and her husband, Pat Nolan, did a, a really good webinar um, about pretty much about this same type of topic. And it's one of these things that kind of helped change the way I, I and others should approach doing obedience. And uh, Connie, if you want to talk about that webinar, because it was really a big success. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was called Connecting Obedience with the Pursuit of Reward. And, you know, Pat and I had very similar backgrounds, just kind of coming up through dog training in the, in the decades that we did. And, and it used to be that you, you considered that you were working a dog or playing with a dog. And, and so we would work the dog, and then we would, at the end, we'd play with him. And that was okay, but it really wasn't very effective. And then we kind of discovered, well, I know what I'll do. I'll play with him first, and then I'll work him, and then I'll play with him. And then you even tried, well, maybe if I play with him and then work him and play with him and then work him and play with him, maybe that'll be better. The problem with that was all of those theories is that the dog never feels like he's in control of reward. He's just kind of going through things with some, it's, it's almost drudgery, looking for the cues from you that you're going to decide when it's time to play. In other words, he doesn't make that happen. He just waits for you to decide. It's kind of like the teacher who says, well, now we're going to go to recess. And, and the kid says, I don't have any control of that. It's just when she decides, it's time. And, and so as we discovered, and, I, and both of us kind of, again, went through a parallel path, that if we could get the dog to believe that his behavior caused the play to happen or caused reward to happen, well, then what happens is that he becomes very motivated to offer the behaviors that he knows can make reward happen. But you got to take it one more step than this. And man, I have troubles when I'm teaching people to do obedience. They really push back against this. They think it's all about the cookie. You know, my dog's only doing it for the cookie. Well, that's not true. When you start using a reward marker, what happens is that you start to enjoy the activity that leads to reward. And um, the example that I use, and, and again, this is this is, may seem a little silly, but if we all knew this when we were kids, there was a certain day of the week, or if you had um, your riding lesson on a Tuesday, or you had gym class on a certain day, there was a certain day of the week you started to look forward to the day because of the activity. Well, if a dog starts to offer a behavior, like a silly one, like run to your bed, just go get on your bed. If he starts to realize that he can make you reward him by running to his bed, he will actually start enjoying the activity that leads to reward. And that's when we get dogs who do obedience with with a tremendous amount of drive and a tremendous amount um, of enthusiasm. And I'm telling you, the sport of obedience has a lot of really unmotivating behaviors required. It, it is like precision. They have to sit straight. They have to run straight. They have to pivot straight. That stuff's no fun. If you don't connect those behaviors with reward and teach the dog to enjoy those retrievers, I'm sorry, those behaviors, you will never get an enthusiastic performance. Yeah. And, you know, for the guys listening to this and girls listening to this that are police canine handlers or military handlers, you know, you guys aren't judged or evaluated on a dog's like I guess the best word to use is enthusiasm or precision or speed or some speed and time speed is judged. But, um, you know, one of the things and whether it's NAPWA or USPCA, whatever, 
um, most of the time you are evaluated on um, obedience and it comes disguised or in control, but it comes disguised as obedience. Um, and a lot of times I go to other training groups and I see guys that are like, oh, my dog doesn't like to do this. And I'm like, well, no, dummy. He doesn't like to do it because you don't reward him for doing it. And you yank him around, like Eric said, for like an hour. And if you go back and listen to a lot of the other episodes where Eric and talks about, you know, or Eric and I both talk about going to other groups and like you see a group of 15 dudes there and all they've got on are, you know, fur savers and, you know, six foot leads. I'm like, I know everything I need to know about this group. They're just going to yank these dogs around. The obedience is going to be kind of okay. You know, the control is probably not going to be there. They're going to have some outing problems. You know, they're going to have some obedience to odor problems. And Eric and I have seen the same problems during HRD uh, with a lot of the groups that like the guy shows up and they're like, well, I, I only need a, a fur saver on because a flat collar could be used against a dog when someone he's biting a suspect or whatever else. I, I hear I, Eric and I've heard all the kinds of stuff, but it's because they haven't moved past the 1980s and they haven't, like you said, moved paired reward with um, this behavior to determine reliability. So, you know, one thing I want to kind of kind of hit on here is for the people listening to this that are handling a search and rescue dog, a patrol dog, in a working field where we're doing, which is a lot of people that listen to this, how do we start to establish some uh, better reliability in these basic foundational exercises um, if they've already got a dog that's three or four or five years old? Uh, well, are we talking about reliability or are we talking about and getting him to want to do it reliable? Well, uh, like, let's we do trying, both. Are we well, I mean, okay. I mean, let's do both. Okay. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, when you ask a dog to do something, only one of two things can happen. He either does it right or he does it wrong. So when he does it right, it is, it is our responsibility to respond. And, and I use two. It's re, I, dog training has just gotten simpler and simpler for me the older I get because, it, you know, it, it's just not that complicated. I use two kinds of reward markers. I use a reward marker that means keep doing what you're doing. And for me, that's just good. If I say good, it just means keep doing that because I love what you're doing. And I also use a reward marker, which means right there, right there, you earned reward. And so that's what I believe gets enthusiasm because what happens to a dog, and I saw this the other day. I was helping a guy with a dog, and we were just trying to work with a reward marker. It's not just enough to whip out the toy because then they're just looking for you to reach for the toy. I'm going to use a marker, whether it's a word, a whistle, a clicker, I don't care. But I got to pair it with a reward marker. And why is that? Because that reward marker starts to cause a dopamine release for the dog. So we're working this dog. We're trying to just, just work on does this dog understand the reward marker and what's the benefit of that? So he's sending the dog to the bed. He's marking the behavior, throwing a toy. Sending him to the bed, marking the behavior, throwing the toy. And I'm saying to him, look, what happens is this dog is going to start to really enjoy running to the bed. He says, you know, why is that? And I, I'm trying to explain the chemistry of it, which is really better explained far better than I can in a book called uh, The Compass of Pleasure. It's kind of a hard read, but it really is a fascinating read. Anyway, he's sending the dog to the bed. He marks the behavior. He throws the toy. The dog runs and gets the toy, and then it picks up the toy and runs back to the bed. Now, if the dog were not starting to enjoy the activity once he had the reward, why would he have run to the bed? 
And that, that for me, that was mm. perfect because it was showing this guy, look, they start to enjoy the activity that we pair with a reward marker and then reward. They can't help it. There's a dopamine release. They start to enjoy the activity that leads to reward. And as far as I'm concerned, when they are, you know, there's two ways to think about dog training. I can make you do it or I can make you want to do it. And reliability goes way up when I've created a way to make the dog want to do what I ask, not just make him do it. So I do have a question for you in regards to the marker stuff. I, I posted this question on a Facebook group and I got um, a, a kind of a 50-50 re, uh, response was, so when you're using, um, and I'm just curious on your opinion on it, when you're using um, negative reinforcement followed up by a, uh, a reward, um, do you view the removal of the pressure as the marker or do you add a marker on top of that? Um, can you give me an example? I am teaching, teaching a behavior where I am using leash and collar pressure, maybe, maybe going away from me onto, uh, onto the bottom, a uh, crate bottom. And I, I go okay. forward with the, with the leash on the pressure as the dog removes it. I mark it and and then pay them for going into the crate bottom. However, um, I, I started thinking, I'm like, do, is, is, are you actually marking the correct behavior with the clicker or the word or whatever, or is the removal of the pressure enough of the marker as doing it correctly? No, I'm marking it. I'm marking it with a word or a, or a sound. I'm absolutely marking it. Okay. And then, and I think we need to have a little bit of a conversation about if you don't, unless you you, you want to delve into that a little deeper, we have to have a little bit of a conversation about. You know, I said there's only two things that happen when you ask a dog to do something: they either do it right or they do it wrong. But every time they do it wrong, we have to ask ourselves the question: Is the dog trying or not? Because there's two kinds of mistakes. I call them effort errors and lack of effort errors. An effort error is characterized by confusion, sometimes by fear or nervousness. And, and I, when I'm doing a seminar, I ask people, I said, do you all know what your dog looks like when he's confused? Because if he's confused, it is our job to make it clearer. And that, that's an effort error. And, and when, I, when I train dogs, I am astounded by how few lack of effort errors they make. They almost always are making mistakes because they're confused about something. They're confused because it's a different situation, because... You know, we, we have to keep in mind that dog, just because a dog can learn to do something in one place, he doesn't know how to do it in another place. It takes dogs a while to generalize. So then there's another type of, of mistake, which I would say is a lack of effort. And those are characterized by being distracted or being disinterested. You know, there's, there's the dog that you say, come, and he just acts like he didn't hear you. That's a distracted dog. The dog that you say, come, he looks over his shoulder at you like, yeah, I'll get around to that in a second. That's a dog who I, I would say thinks he has a choice. Those dogs are the only dogs that I would, and again, we're using an old-fashioned word in my mind, correct. Those are the only dogs. If I'm going to do something that a dog perceives as unpleasant, it's because he was either distracted or disinterested. There's it, just because he's confused, just because he didn't do what I wanted, does not mean that he deserves to be corrected. 
It's only if he's not trying. And I, and I characterize those as distracted or disinterested. In that vein, on if you're looking that in a, in a dog, the lack of effort, error, because um, they just don't want to, do you find that to be a um, maybe a genetic trait in the dog? No. I think that the, the, the biggest mistake dogs make, I don't care what venue you are working on, the biggest mistake dogs make is that they don't pay attention. And I think we have to have a way to say to a dog, you must pay attention to me. The only time I jerk on a dog's leash is when he's not paying attention. And I teach dogs very systematically, if I give a tug on your leash, the correct response is to look at me. When I put a dog in a situation that he does not like, I think it's my job to teach him what behavior to offer me next. So, you know, reinforcement says I'm going to increase the likelihood that a behavior will occur. So if I give a tug on a leash, I want that dog to whip around and look at me and say, yes, ma'am, what was it that you wanted? Because I was not paying attention. Almost every mistake a dog makes in, in, the, in the venues I compete in, which are field trials and obedience, um, and, you know, my service dogs, we teach the service dogs the same way. The reason they made a mistake is that they weren't paying attention. If I have a way to say to that dog, right now you have to pay attention to me, and the dog says, you know what, I don't like it when she gives a tug on my leash. I'm going to turn around and make eye contact with her and ask her what she wanted me to do. Almost every mistake they make can be um, diminished to a, you really weren't paying attention to me. You know, I don't you, care if you're 300 yards like away. Alicia. Alicia. I don't know who Alicia is. Like Alicia but Alicia uh, my this girlfriend. Ted's girlfriend. Yeah, the producer <laughs> of Working Dog Radio and okay. the head cat herder. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because when I get the opportunity to raise puppies, um, the first thing I teach them is you have to pay attention to me if you want to do anything. I don't care what it is you want to do. If you want to go to the bathroom, you got to pay attention to me. And, um, I've gotten the opportunity to raise puppies and sell them as green. And the, the departments um, that buy those dogs green are like, holy cow, this is like the best, the easiest dog to train in the world. I'm like, yeah, well, it's because he's listening to what you're saying. And, it's, you know, he's waiting for you to tell him what to do. He's waiting for you to show him what to do. And, you know, you mentioned something like, oh, I'm going to the only time I jerk on a dog's leash is when they're not paying attention to me. And, you know, that's how you get them to pay attention to you. And, and our side if you overcorrect some of these dogs or, you know, in this entire conversation, if we correct a dog and they don't understand why they're being corrected, uh, you end up wearing them. Um, well, but that's, but I understand that, but that's our job. Right. Oh, I 100% agree. Teach them. Our job is to teach them, you know, I, there's no random acts of violence in obedience in, in my world. There's no random act of violence. If, if I'm going to do anything that the dog perceives as unpleasant, he has to have been taught what behavior to offer next. He has to have been taught that. And that's a systematic process. That is not, I just decided to start jerking on a dog and I hope that he started paying attention to me. It can't be that way. I have to teach him what behavior I expect next. Um, I tell a story at my seminars and I, 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 this, this may be, you know, too far out for, for our police guys, but, um, I was doing a seminar in the Napa Valley in California, and I'm flying out to California on a Friday afternoon, and I'm going to rent a car, and I'm going to drive from San Francisco to the Napa Valley to do a seminar. And I get in this car, and it's a hybrid, and it, it is a fancier car than anything I've ever driven, and I don't know anything about this car. And I'm trying to figure out all bells and whistles and everything that's going on. And I get on the San Francisco highway, and all of a sudden the car starts beeping at me. 
and it's going ding, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And I think, okay, well, in my car, when that happens, you don't have your seatbelt buckled. So I unbuckled my seatbelt and I buckled it again. And it's still dinging at me. And I'm thinking, what in the world is the matter? Well, in my car, the only other time I hear that sound is if the door is not shut tight. So going 55 miles an hour on the highway, I push the door open and I slam it shut again. And the car keeps dinging at me. Now, I'm really starting to freak out. I'm really getting nervous. I'm in a car that I is not mine. I don't understand. There's six lanes of traffic. There doesn't look like anywhere that I can get off. And I don't know why this car is dinging at me. And finally, I see an exit, and I think, oh, thank goodness, there's, it looks safe. It's not just another highway. I'm going to get off. I'm going to figure out what's going on with this car. I'd left my blinker on. <laughs> so as I finally turn my blinker, you know, I reach down to turn my blinker on because I'm going to get in the exit lane, I realize, what the heck? I'd had my blinker on the whole time. That's why it was digging on me. But I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why that thing was digging at me. And I tell that story because I never want to put a dog in that situation. I never want to be doing something that he perceives as unpleasant unless I have taught him how to make it stop and how to keep it from happening again. That, that is my job as the dog trainer. How dare I do something that he doesn't like that upsets him or disrupts him without having taught him what it is that I expect next? I can't just let him hang there guessing. Then I'm putting him in that same situation that I was in when the car was dinging at me and I didn't know how to control it. Yeah, absolutely. When we start talking about um, the patrol dogs and even that the single purpose dogs uh, for us, for the police dog or for the police and the, uh, and the search and rescue side, <clears throat> if you've got a dog that's two, three, four, five years old and uh, I think we started talking about this and then we kind of went off into the weeds a little bit, which is fine because it was great. Uh, but how do we start establishing some reliability um, in these behaviors? Um, and how would you say you take a dog that's been trained with, like as Eric mentioned a minute ago, the yank and crank method where you were just like applying pressure and then as soon as the dog performs something, we release pressure. How do we start? And I say this because I, when my handlers come to school, like, they look at me like I'm stupid when I say this, but I was like, I got to teach you how to play with your dog. They're like, Oh, I know how to play with a dog. I got a dog. It's a kid. I was like, well, no, you don't <laughs> like you, like you, you got to learn how to play with him one. So you don't upset him. And two, so that, you know, you understand like how we're reinforcing things and what I want you to do. And so talk a little bit about, so somebody that's living somewhere that's not supported, that's handling a police dog in a small department. Um, they can start doing some small things that they can start pairing and start adding some reliability to their obedience um, without having one of us or, or you around, as, easy, as I guess is what I'm getting at. Okay. Um, let, me, let me think about that for just a second. Where would I even begin? I, you know, if, if the big deal is um, the reliability is probably um, stay where I put you and come when I call you, right? Right. Okay. Is that is that our is that our our most important thing, right? Yeah. Most every most is, every certification maybe. requires like a long down and requires like a recall and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean that's a good place to start. Um, so uh, you know let's let's talk about I I hate to put people on the spot and they they say, you know I really you know I I play with him I, I it's that's you can't make somebody they're not. You know, we all have different personalities, and I, I don't think that we can we can make somebody, you know, be happier, relax, play more. 
I mean, if that's not your personality, you're going to just really struggle with that and feel pretty inept. I, I, I would much rather say, what is it that this dog loves more than anything else? What does he love? And then how can we, and, and, you know, I don't care if they say, well, the, the thing he likes the best is, is for me to run across the yard with him. Oh, that's fine with me. That can be his reward. Um, but how can we make sure that we're pairing that behavior that we want to be reliable with reward that's meaningful to the dog? And that, you know, it's, it's not about, I want to make you do this. It, that works when a dog is two, three years old, but it doesn't work in the long haul. you got to make them want to do it. There's got to be something in it for you and or for the dog. When I'm working my field trial dog today and I want him to lie down quietly while he's waiting for his turn to go get birds, there's nothing harder. He doesn't want to lie down quietly. But I'm pairing it. I mean, in that silly situation, I'm pairing it with a game of tug of war. And how do I increase duration? I delay the reward. So pretty soon he's lying down quietly because he says, boy, I'd rather retrieve birds. But if she's going to play tug of war with me, I know it's going to happen any second. So, you know, I, I, I think we've got to ask these guys, what is it that you can use as reward comfortably? And, and what, what do you think their answer would be most of the time? Or is it just too much trouble? Well, I mean, most of these dudes are going to tell you that, <clears throat> oh, it's a ball or a tug or... Um, and then I still get the people that, for whatever reason, uh, and I, I know some dogs do, but, like, there are some dogs that do work for praise. I, there aren't a lot of police dogs that do. But, um, like, when they're saying, oh, good boy, it's one of Eric and I's biggest pet peeves during HRD, and we're like, okay, well, one, does that have any weight? Right? When you're like, oh, good boy, they're like, well, I mean, I assume it does. And I'm like, okay, well, then stop saying it because he's not a good boy right now because he's doing something I don't want him to do. So stop. And if it doesn't have weight, shut up. Stop saying it. Like, so you bring up an interesting point about what does the dog work for that has value to the dog? Whether some pet dogs I've seen have prey, like, you know, they'll work for affection. Um, my personal Malinois, when he's working, if I touch him, he gets funky. He's like, don't mess with me. Don't touch me. I don't want you to touch me. Just let me, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. And then let me go bite somebody or let me come back and play with this tug. But making this reward work for, and every detection handler listening to this, you understand that their dog is working for the prospect of a ball falling out of the sky and hitting him in the forehead. Like every detection handler, or they should know that. If that comes news to somebody, send me an email. But every detection handler listening to this is working for the prospect of a ball falling out of the sky, hitting him in the forehead when they find odor. And... I try and tell my handlers that during obedience too, and talking about rate of reward and making sure that they're rewarding for specific behaviors and key points in time and and routines and everything else. Um, so no, I think you handled that question fantastically. So, um, Eric, you have a question about, um, podium versus, I, can I, can I, oh, can I sure. just interrupt you one second? Oh, hundred percent. I, if you know, I, I've, I've done my fair share of, 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 of scent work. I mean, I'm married to Pat Nolan. So, you know, we raise right. puppies, we imprint them on odor. And, and I'm going to tell you, my dog, that we got to take it a step further than that. If the dog were simply looking for something because the ball was going to hit him in the head, 
I think we're missing an extra step because I don't want him to think the ball is going to hit him in the head. I want him to think the reward marker is going to occur and the reward marker causes the ball to happen. And the reason for that is, is that they start to enjoy the activity that leads to reward. The best detection dog in the world loves looking for stuff. Yes. And we had not just hoping the ball will hit him. He loves looking for stuff. When we interviewed Dave Croyer uh, about marker training for police dogs, we had an entire episode just about marker training for police dogs. And we talked about that. And there's a divide, not a divide. There is a, there's a thing going on in the police dog industry not right now about indirect versus direct reward markings. Um, and when you start looking at large kennels like Von Lick and Shallow Creek and K2 and these huge kennels that do these giant classes, the one thing about direct reward, which Eric and I and guys that are that do that a lot are that we really like is it's extremely precise. We can mark the, ex- like you've said, we can mark the exact time and behavior. We can mark the exact point in time. We can use a word or a sound or whatever it is. The, I tried that with some like police dog handlers and uh, the, the, you end up with guys that are not real good with timing and it's difficult to maintain and it's hard to teach them that. And so when I talk about rewards falling out of the sky, we see a lot of direct reward being the easiest way to maintain a narcotics dog, not an explosive dog. Um, and I use that a lot. In fact, I just had a handler school finish and all those dogs are direct reward. Um, and then we start doing variable reward where we have, you know, two and three and four fines where they don't get rewarded and drive continues to increase and they get rewarded in the last one. And so we start to bleed them off of rewards in general, but you end up finding that they are marking themselves uh, that I don't rely on the handlers to mark the behavior. Um, and in a perfect world, I would have guys for years at a time, but I only get them for, you know, a month or six weeks at a time. And I'm not able to teach them <laughs> proper timing in that amount of time, unfortunately. But I, I, Eric and I both 150% agree with that. And I just wish that was the standard. Um, you know, Justin Rigman well, does know- a fantastic, fantastic job of teaching that. And um, Eric mentioned a guy named Jonathan Mary who does a really good job of doing that too. Well, I'm just going to encourage the people that are listening, you know, it, that maybe if nothing else, it's piqued their interest. I was really yes. slow coming to the, I was really slow coming to the reward marker table. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I've, you know, I've had 11 obedience trial champions and five field champions personally. And I trained a lot of those dogs without using a reward marker. And I'm going to tell you that when I started using reward markers, the things that I could get dogs to do just quadrupled. I mean, it was astounding. Stuff that I had struggled with in the past no longer was difficult. And and so I just would really, you know, encourage people that are listening, if you've never used a reward marker or you think you have something to learn about how to use a reward marker, man, be open-minded because it, other than other than Diane Bauman saying to me in the 1980s, hey, could we please stop hurting dogs for things they don't understand? Other than that, the one other thing that revolutionized my dog training was understanding how to use a reward marker and watching the unbelievable things that we could teach dogs to do once we started to really understand how to use a marker. I, I think the timing of a reward marker is way easier than the timing of trying to get a reward to the dog in oftentimes surreptitiously. And, oh, and yeah. I, I just would encourage people to say, you know what? 
I don't think I'm going to believe this, and I think it's going to be a bunch of junk, but I'm at least going to be open-minded and, and explore it. And especially now with a lot of handlers coming up, and they're all millennials, and they grew up playing video games, they have a lot of times they have really good timing because of playing video games their entire life. So, Oh, believe me. And, you know, and that's, you know, Mike Suttle said the same thing for everybody listening. The episode that we're talking about was, uh, Eric helped me out like 10 or 12 ago. We interviewed Dave Croyer and it was specifically about marker training just for police dogs, but he does a great job explaining all of that stuff top to bottom, um, of what Connie's talking about. So go back and listen to it if you haven't, or go back and listen to it again and then come back and listen to this one again. Um, yes. So Eric, what did you want to ask? Yeah. So, um, before we, uh, start wrapping up, I want to circle back around to, um, the, uh, we'll, we'll just do field trial dogs. Um, we, we did an interview with, uh, a Mondia ring buddy of ours named Jake Scott that just came out and we talked about those types of dogs that were going through Mondia ring, um, being sold, when the when the uh, owner handler figured out that the dog was good and could you know get a good scorebook and everything, but wasn't going to podium, and my my question to you is is in the field trials, so a person who has championed so many dogs, when do you know in field trials that you got a dog that will hunt, but but probably might not win? Uh, what things set those apart? Um, actually, probably what sets the field trail dogs apart is something that is a complete, it, it's, it's, it has, there's no training that has a basis on it, and it's what we would call their marking ability. So when a dog watches a bird go down and can go, you know, 200, 300 yards and put his nose down on the bird, that, I, I, there's, it's just genetic. There are some dogs that can get to the air, what we call the area of the fall, and then they find the bird by hunting. But there are some dogs who just, it's, it's uncanny. I mean, if you've never seen it, it's just unbelievable. They can go up and down and through cover and through water and stop and be within feet of where they saw the bird fall. And those dogs are, if you've ever had one that's like that, you just, they take your breath away. But I will say, it's a field trial dog as far as I'm concerned, should never fail to make it because somebody can't teach him his obedience. That's just, you know, they, they, these dogs have such an incredible amount of desire that if we pair the obedience with what they want to do, they should be absolutely crazy to offer obedience because they know birds are coming. The more obedient they are. For example, we have bird dogs that are unbelievably intense retrievers, but they don't move a muscle while guns are going off and birds are falling because they know the only way to get to be sent for a retrieve is if I'm absolutely motionless. It's like the hawk on the wire. So, you know, the obedience shouldn't be what keeps them from being a competitive dog. But beyond that, I would say, how committed are you to the dog? Because there's not a dog out there that I've ever trained that doesn't have some kind of issue along the way. You can't train a dog for years and years and years and not hit some snags and have some problems. And if you're committed to the dog and you you just enjoy working the dog, you'll work through things. You'll you'll make it to the other side. Do you find that um, so the dogs the, the five dogs that you got dual championships with? Do you find having such a high um, understanding on that obedience side in the competition put you ahead of those other folks? Do you think that's 
the correlation there? Yes, I think I win and lose field trials based on how obedient the dog is next to me. When when I can get him to look where I want him to look and to pay attention to birds and to give me just movements that are minuscule um, to help direct him where I want him to go, I think you win and lose field trials based on how obedient they are. Are other people starting to figure that out or no? Oh, yeah. A lot of people figured it out. A lot of people figured it out, but they can't all make them do it. And I, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the thing. When you have a dog who's in a really high drive state, how obedient can you make him be? And, and I don't think you, you made a comment that, that sometimes people think, well, if I make him be obedient, he'll have less drive. I field trailers know that that's not true because these dogs are in a high drive state. When when shotguns start going off and birds start falling, there's there's hardly any more intense than that. Um, they it's not that they believe if he'll if he's more obedient he'd have less drive. It's I can't make him be more obedient because he has so much drive. And when you figure out, yeah, I can make him be absolutely obedient, um, and he has all that drive, that's. That's really the exciting combination. Awesome. So you mentioned earlier that you had been teaching for a long time and you've recently gotten rid of your uh, brick and mortar and gone solely um, online for webinars and online teaching. So where uh, where do people find that stuff? Um, OnlineObediencetraining.com is a website that I've had for quite a while that has information for uh all kinds of people, um, new pet owners and competitive obedience people. And then more recently, um, I just after I, after I sold my, my business, I started a website called The Obedience Road, obedienceroad.com, not the, but just obedienceroad.com. And that really is a website designed for people who want to have a high level of obedience and, and are considering competitive obedience. It's a membership site. I'm having a lot of fun there. Awesome. We'll put and, um, and you know it, I, I'm just I'm just going to say to you you know don't say got rid of I loved my business I loved my brick and mortar business I had a wonderful time there I had a wonderful staff uh, it it just it so limits you as to how many people you can reach and after having written a book and produced DVDs I really wanted to play with the technology available to us because I, I think as dog trainers you know we need written information but we need video and we've got the technology to 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 get that out to people. And that was kind of my goal. Yeah. You know, um, that's a, a common thing now in 2020. Um, and you know, a lot of people learn that way now. And you know, you have the, like, you know, a lot of things can be taught that way. And like you said, before we started recording, like you spent a lot of time on the floor with leashes in your hands. And, you know, you told the story about, um, having people come back to you with their dog. And they said, you know, I was here when, I came through as a kid with my parents, with our family's dog, and you taught us obedience then too. And so you you probably had learned quite a bit about, you know, training people to handle dogs. <laughs> so, well, you know. Well, yeah, I was 33 years of teaching obedience classes, and, and, you know, there was a time, a long time, decades, that I was seeing well over 100 uh, to more like 120 dogs every week. Dogs don't surprise me anymore. When you see that many dogs, you just it's hard to catch up with me. I, I mean, I, they, I just don't see dogs do stuff that I haven't seen another dog do before. 
<laughs> That's fantastic. So uh, we're going to put links to that in the show notes um, for everybody listening. Um, go check it out. Um, Eric, where are you? On her website, actually. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'll get on there later. I, you're, uh, you're like, I'm already this is one of these. E- this is one of these episodes that I'll replay and listen to a bunch, you know, because I'm always right. going to grow. But um, I was just on the obedienceroad.com, and it, it's a really nice website. Um, there's uh, a lot of opportunities on there to, to learn. Um, she, she even has an option on there of you can send her videos of your dog, and she'll give you, you know, consult, consult on it. And, you, you know, it's funny you said that about seeing so many dogs. I use the line to people a lot. Uh, handlers, police handlers, and uh, pet dog owners, I'll say, uh, when they're, you know, really frustrated with their dog or whatever, I'm like, you know your dog didn't invent this. This behavior that he's doing. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. That's yeah. so they're true. like, can you fix this? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, really? Um, huh. I'm over at Van SK9 on Instagram. I'll have a lot more videos and stuff coming up uh, from the new facility. Um, and then we are on Patreon at Working Dog Radio. Uh, what about you, Ted? Uh, Torchlight Canine, letter K number nine, is the kennel side. Um, and then Ted underscore Summers is the Instagram for my personal, which is also basically just a work one. And, of course, working, do- working underscore dog underscore radio for the podcast uh, is where you can find us. And like you mentioned, uh, Patreon, already we have content. I'm finishing up another video for that. As soon as I can get the audio done, uh, it'll be uploaded, and then we've got some other stuff in the works. Got a couple new T-shirts and a new patch going out. Uh, the patch going out, T-shirts will be up for sale um, here pretty quickly, getting the website designed for the podcast. So workingdogradio.com. We'll have a new look probably by the time this airs. Um, yeah, so other than that, that's where I'm at. How often do you guys decide on, or, or you, or uh, you and Pat together, I know you guys haven't been doing as many together, but on your webinars, is it just something that comes in your head and you're like, well, we should do one of these, or do you have a, a routine schedule? No, that's pretty much it. What comes in our head, and, and you know, we have one of those, you know, over coffee conversations, and I think, and I say, hey, what Pat? People need to know this. We we should have this conversation publicly. Um, so that's, and, and we're going different directions right now. He's he's really busy doing his thing, and I'm busy doing mine. But uh, we sure do enjoy training dogs together. It's a great gig. You got to have a certain level of security clearance to know what he's doing. His thing is. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I, I can we can we can still talk about dog training, even though I I don't you know don't always know all the all the ins and outs of what he's doing. Oh, we can yeah. still talk about princi- principles, and principles don't change. So, this is true. This is- well, gentlemen, it has been my pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, yes. Eric. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for ha- having me. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate it. Um, so everybody go check out the websites. Uh, check the show notes. Everything will be there. Connie, again, thank you. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Our oldest sponsor, our first sponsor, and our good friend, and a great dude all around, Arno at ALM Canine Equipment. Uh, his suits and his canine tugs and bite sleeves are some of the best in the industry. His Dude, I have a whole array of different uh, hidden sleeves from him of all various levels of dogs. Uh, he has a discount code for us, which is amazing, WD Radio for 10% off your first order. ALMK9Equipment.com. Give him, a, give him a shout, man. Arno is a good guy with great quality equipment. ALMK9Equipment.com. One of the original three 
sponsors that have been with us from the beginning is Tripwire Operations Group, LLC. They're an internationally recognized leading provider of products, services, and training for federal, state, local, and law enforcement agencies and military units. They are ATF licensed for explosive material manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection, canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. These three kits combined create the complete picture for ex- the explosive threats of canines. Be sure to check them out, tripwireops.org. The music in this episode is used with permission by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at Brother Deeg, that's spelled D-E-G-E dot net. Be sure to check him out there or on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or anywhere you stream media. This episode has been edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt. Visit our other sites at patreon.com, look for Working Dog Radio, hrdpolicecanine.com, and look for the nearest seminar near you. You got your reasons, I got my wants, still got that feeling, but I'm too Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.